Good morning again, Ohio Gazaimas. Great to be here with you guys. Uh, welcome to Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni. Today in our study, we're going to see a bit of a shift in focus regarding Luke's narrative of the life of Jesus Christ. You know, as of late, we've been tracking Jesus as he's made his way towards Jerusalem, spending a good amount of time in the region of Perea. And during his time in this area, Luke has focused in upon how Jesus was warning his disciples and the people of certain things. He pronounced woes against the Pharisees and the lawyers and warned his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which he identified as hypocrisy. He warned his disciples about covetousness, about worry, about negligence, and about false or misguided assumptions. He warned them about how they would perish if they did not repent. In chapter 13, Jesus spoke of the ways of the kingdom and corrected a number of misconceptions the Jews had about their place in God's kingdom, warning them that unless they repent and receive God's Son, that they would have no part in the kingdom. And over the last few weeks, we noted the events that took place at a dinner party Jesus was invited to at the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. During the dinner, Jesus confronted nearly everyone who was in attendance. He confronted the Pharisees and lawyers. He confronted those who were seeking self-exaltation. And he even confronted his host and challenged him to invite the poor and the maimed, the lame and the blind, instead of the rich and the powerful who would simply repay him for his generosity and his gesture. Jesus also confronted another presumptuous Jew who was certain he and all in attendance would one day partake of bread with God in heaven, all because of the fact that they were Jewish. And Jesus, he challenged that idea using a parable about a great feast that illustrated how God will welcome in the least likely to his kingdom and that the Jews will be left out because they did not respond to God's invitation to come through his son. And so there has been an emphasis upon challenging and confronting uh, false ideas and misconceptions as of late. But here in our text, and, and for the next few chapters, in fact, Jesus is going to begin to direct his attention towards his disciples and the topic of discipleship. Okay? Just as there was misconceptions and false beliefs among the masses Jesus came across, there were also misconceptions and false beliefs among those who were following Jesus. The multitudes that were following Jesus were following him for all sorts of various different reasons. Some followed him because they wanted to be the recipient of a miraculous healing or touch from the Lord. Some enjoyed his teaching and how he stood up to the religious elite and their hypocrisy. Others just wanted to see Jesus do something amazing. Some were following him, expecting him to lead a revolt against Rome and to establish an immediate earthly kingdom, and others were simply looking to benefit from a free meal or two. All sorts of people were following Jesus for all sorts of different reasons. And here in chapter 14 and for the next few chapters, Jesus is going to turn his attention and his focus upon those who were following him and teach them about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 14 verses 25 through 35 and the title of our text is going to be counting the cost. Counting the cost. And so if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 14 if you haven't done so already. And then once you are there, I'd like to invite you to rise to your feet in honor of God and his word. 
I'm going to read the entirety of our text from my Bible as as my normal uh, practice. I'll be reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. Uh, If you're doing reading from a different translation, I want to encourage you, do your best to follow along. Luke writes the following in chapter 14, verse 25. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or... What king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000 or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to open up your word and allow your word to speak to us. And Lord, as Luke closes off our text, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is desiring to say to us today as your church. Lord, that we would take this message and that we would not just understand it within the context of it being shared, but we'd understand it and how it applies to us, Lord. I pray that our ears would be open, our hearts would be open, our minds would be open to all that your spirit desires to show us. And so, Lord, we give you this time of study. We ask for your leading and guiding, and we thank you for your continued presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Our text opens up mentioning the great multitudes that went with Jesus. Uh, The wording here lets us know that this was a mixed multitude, a, a throng of people gathered together that was more like a mob than an organized group. This mob of people had been following Jesus as he made his way towards Jerusalem, each with their own reasons for following him. Jesus turned towards the mixed multitudes and he says something that is a bit surprising. It definitely had some shock value to it. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, you guys, context is very important. Understanding what Jesus just did at the dinner party he was invited to is important to the overall context. Jesus had just spoke about an invitation that would go out to all sorts of people. Jesus spoke a parable about a great feast that paralleled what it would be like in heaven. He spoke of how invitations went out to all sorts of people, to the Jews, to the poor, to the maimed, to the lame, to the blind that were within this city, even to those who were outside this city, referring, I believe, to God's invitation to the Gentiles to come and partake of this as well. Jesus was speaking about how anyone and everyone was invited to come and be part of this great feast, to be part of God's kingdom in heaven. 
And he even mentioned how the ultimate desire of the master of the house was that his house be filled, that there wouldn't be a single empty seat in the house. And in correlating this to God's kingdom in heaven, we understand that it is the Father's desire that none should perish, but that all would come and enter into his kingdom. The invitation's been sent out. God has sent Jesus to tell people that time has come to respond to that invitation to enter into God's kingdom. But then Jesus follows up here with the multitudes and says that unless you hate your family and yourself, there's no way to be his disciple. One message seems to be very open and inclusive, while the other seems very closed off and and exclusive. What's going on here? How do we understand the context and the understanding of the text in itself? Some suggest that the main difference between the two teachings is in regards to salvation and discipleship. The invitation to come and be part of the great feast is an invitation to salvation. It goes out to all, but only those who listen to and respond to the servant sent by the master will enter in. The servant is referring to Jesus Christ. Jesus was sent to tell people the time to enter into God's kingdom had come. But here in our text this morning, the call to follow Jesus is a call to discipleship. Being a disciple of Jesus involves much more than simply following Jesus from within a crowd. As the word suggests, being a disciple requires discipline. Generally speaking, a disciple is a learner or a pupil of another. But in the New Testament, it carries a more significant meaning. It carries with it the idea of being an adherent who accepts the instructions given to him and makes it his rule of conduct. Okay? A disciple of Jesus not only knew what Jesus taught, but also made it his aim to live his life in accordance with those teachings. Now, some people try to suggest that you can be a believer or a follower of Jesus, but not a disciple of the Lord, as if to suggest being a disciple is you know, some special kind of Christian that dedicates their life to following Jesus more so than a normal follower or a normal believer in the Lord. But listen, I want to warn you guys, making such a distinction from Scripture would be hard to do. Okay? Jesus never called for people to follow him as a believer only. Jesus wasn't looking to make a bunch of Christians and then call some select few to be disciples. To be a follower of Jesus was to be a disciple of Jesus. The term Christian was never even used during Jesus' public ministry. Jesus never called people to mere Christianity. He called them to follow him, to commit their lives to him as disciples. In fact, the term Christian wouldn't even be introduced till later on in the book of Acts. And it was actually a term that was quite derogatory towards believers, okay? And so the idea that you could be a, a believer or you could be a Christian but not a disciple of Jesus isn't something that was perpetrated by Jesus through his teachings. It is an idea that's infiltrated the church and has caused, I believe, more harm than good. It results in what some call cheap grace, Cheap grace is something used to refer to a religion that makes no demands of its adherence, a religiosity that gives a polite nod at commitment but refuses to pay the price it exacts. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he claims that cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church, and he insists that we are fighting today for costly grace. Costly because it costs God the life of His Son, yet grace because it still justifies the sinner. Bonhoeffer writes, Christianity without the living Christ is inevitably Christianity without discipleship. And Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. Jesus called people to follow after him, to be his disciples. And he does the same to us. The great commission is not to go out and make converts. It is not to go out and make believers, but it is to go out and to make disciples. Jesus wants disciples, people who are committed to living their life in accordance with his teachings. And this is what it means for him to be Lord and Savior of our lives. We cannot call Jesus Lord, yet not do what he said, not follow his teachings. He can't be Lord of our lives if we're not willing to submit to his word and to his calling of our lives. You see, in this context here in Luke chapter 14, Jesus understands that there are a bunch of people who are interested in associating with Jesus and sticking around to see what may happen, but far fewer were committed to following him as true believers and disciples. And while the invitation goes out to the masses, only those who submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ and follow after him as disciples will be welcomed into the kingdom. You know, I suspect that Jesus was purposefully saying this to thin out the crowds. He knew that many within the crowd were not following him for spiritual reasons. Many were following him for their own selfish reasons. And it was time to thin the herd a little, to delineate between those who were just along for the ride and those who were truly seeking after a life surrendered to Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters. Yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. We know that Jesus was using what's called hyperbole here. I'm not trying to undermine what he's saying, but this was a form of exaggeration. He's not to be taken literal here. For to do so would be contrary to what the rest of his teachings were. You guys realize and understand that, right? Jesus taught his disciples to honor your father and mother, reiterating in the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments in Matthew 15, verse 4. Jesus taught his disciples to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and that this kind of love was also to be extended to those around us, to our neighbors, that we should love our neighbor as ourselves, right? Jesus said that there was no greater commandment than these two, to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that the world would know that we are his disciples if we have love for one another, not if we hate one another, okay? Jesus said, and even taught that we were to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us. Jesus is not teaching that we should hate our family, that you know husbands should hate their wives or that fathers should hate their children, that we should hate our brothers and sisters. Again, this would be completely contrary to what Jesus is teaching, the rest of Jesus' teachings. Now, we get a clearer understanding when we take a look at a similar exhortation Jesus gave in the Gospel of Matthew, a parallel account. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is recorded as saying, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It isn't isn't that we need to hate our family, 
but that Jesus Christ must be first and foremost in our lives. No relationship, whether that be our parents, our spouses, our children, or any other family, relative, or loved one should ever take a higher place of priority than our relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus needs to be our number one priority. Jesus and our relationship with him is to be top among all other relationships. And listen, church family, it shouldn't even be close. Okay? That's the idea being portrayed here. Okay? It's that our love for the Lord should be so great that it makes our love for others seem like hate in comparison to how we love the Lord. If we want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we must love Jesus more than anyone or anything else. We must love him even more than what we love our own selves. And we love ourselves pretty well. We are to hate our own lives if we want to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus expounds upon this idea in verse 27 when he says, and whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You guys, today... The cross has lost most, if not all, of its shock appeal from the days of first century, first century history. Today we wear you know, crosses on our necklaces and we have them as earrings and we have them on t-shirts and you know, some people have uh, tattoos of crosses and we place them on top of beautiful church steeples. They are used in decorations. They're used as a symbol of our faith. But make no mistake about it. The cross of the first century was a nightmare for many and the sight of one only meant one thing. Someone was about to die an excruciatingly painful and torturous death. That's what the cross meant. It's been said that while the Roman Empire did not invent crucifixion, they did, however, perfect it. The Roman Empire used crucifixion as a means of capital punishment. When they crucified a criminal or captive, the victim was often forced to carry his cross uh, as part of the part of the way to the crucifixion site and doing so showed their submission to Rome and it warned observers that they had better submit to carrying his cross through the heart of the city was supposed to be an implied admission that the Roman Empire was correct in the sentence of death imposed upon him and it was an admission that Rome was right that he was wrong and so when Jesus calls his followers to carry their crosses and follow him he was referring to a public display before others that Jesus was right that the disciples were following him even to their deaths In order to be a disciple of Jesus, we must be willing to die to ourselves, to demonstrate through our lives that Jesus was right, that we will follow him even to our deaths. It was a total commitment, a commitment that would see its ultimate fulfillment in our own death. Our commitment as followers and disciples of the Lord will not be complete until the day we breathe our last here on earth. It is a lifelong commitment. When Jesus bore the cross for you and me, he died 
so that others may live. He sacrificed his very life for the sake of others. And in a similar manner, bearing our cross is the way in which we die to self in order that others can be saved, so that others may be helped, so that others may be redeemed and restored. We lay aside our rights so that others may be ministered to and that they might do well for themselves. We can't save anyone. Only Jesus saves. But Jesus will use his disciples to minister to the world around us. We can be his hands and feet for him as we die to self and we serve others. But we must remember that as we become the hands and feet of the Lord, ultimately Jesus' hands and feet were nailed to a cross in complete surrender and sacrifice for others. And such is the fate for all who answer the call to follow Jesus as his disciple. We're called to give our lives for the sake of Christ. Paul writes in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Being a disciple of Jesus involves a lifelong commitment to sacrificing our own desires, our own rights, our own freedoms for the sake of Christ and his glorious gospel message. This exhortation to bear your cross and come after the Lord was not for the half-hearted observer. This was a line in the sand type of moment, a dividing line that would separate the would-be followers from those who were willing to follow Jesus at whatever the cost. And speaking of cost, Jesus uses a few analogies, illustrations, if you will, to demonstrate what it was like to count the cost and to understand what, was one, what one was committing to when becoming a disciple of Christ. The first analogy is found in verses 28 through 30. Follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. It says, for which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he's laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Jesus uses an analogy here regarding the building of a tower. Uh, it's more likely, uh, most likely referring to a watchtower, uh, most people weren't going around and building towers or for castles or fortresses of their own. However, many people who own vineyards would build towers in the middle of their vineyard as a way for them to climb up high and to see all around their vineyard and make sure that people were not coming in and stealing the fruit off of their vine. And so G Jesus likens the call to discipleship to the builder who first sits down and counts the cost to see whether or not he has enough to finish the project. You see, it would be foolish not to first count the costs. You would be taking a huge risk, the risk of starting a job that you wouldn't be able to finish. And we understand this simply enough, right? This makes sense. You know, before you begin any sort of construction project, you want to put together a budget. You want to make sure you can successfully complete the project with uh, what you have. You know, when a builder doesn't count the cost or perhaps uh, estimates it inaccurately, his building may be left half-completed. And you guys, a half-completed build is a full waste of time, energy, and resources. Jesus is cautioning people to first count the cost before making the decision to follow after him as his disciples. Becoming a Christian has the potential for costing you dearly. It can cost you your friends. It can cost you your status, your livelihood, it could cost you your time, 
your resources, and eventually your loved ones, your family, and even your very own life. You know, we don't understand today and where we live here in Japan and in the United States, the cost so much. Because Christianity is, for the most part, an accepted form of religious practice in these places uh, and in most societies, but not in all of them. Just like the first century church, there are still people today who face banishment, who face excommunication, who even face death for turning to Jesus Christ in faith. Everyone must carefully count the cost of becoming a follower and disciple of Christ so that they will know what they are getting into and they won't be tempted to turn back when things get tough or when we're faced with certain sacrifices and persecution. You see, the life of a Christian is not a life of ease. Okay? Coming to Christ and surrendering your life to Him is no guarantee of a stress-free life of comfort. You know, it's a mistake when we go around saying, hey, just you know, come to Jesus and give your life to Him and you know, your life's going to be great and glorious. You'll never have another problem ever in your life again. You know, that is not the gospel of the Bible. Okay? That is a false gospel. Okay? In fact, it's actually the opposite of that. I don't want to pop anybody's bubbles here, but this is what the Scripture actually teaches. Okay, Paul wrote to Timothy, reminding him of this very important truth. He said, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Not may, okay, but will. Will suffer persecution. And I always like to highlight the fact that it's even those who desire to live godly. Even if you blow it and you don't do it successfully, if you just have a desire to live godly, persecution's coming your way. Jesus told his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Jesus wasn't looking for people to make rash, hasty decisions to believe upon him. He wanted people to carefully and diligently count the cost. He wanted people to know what they were getting into when they surrendered their life to him as a disciple. And I like the analogy Jesus uses here because being a disciple of Jesus does in fact involve a ministry of building. We are called to build up the body of Christ, to edify and strengthen one another. And this is part of our responsibility as disciples of Christ, to help build up his church and to minister to one another. But then there's another aspect of discipleship that's explained in the next analogy. Take a look at it in verse 31 and 32. It says, Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000, or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. Here Jesus refers to another analogy about a king who sits down and establishes a battle plan for going up against a force that outnumbers him two to one. A good and a wise king will first lay out all of his resources and consider the many different strategies for engaging the enemy. He assesses his overall capability and his overall supplies, and he comes to a determination if he believes that he will be able to succeed or not. And after looking over everything, he must decide, does he proceed with the battle plan or does he send out a delegation and ask for conditions of peace before it is too late? To rush into battle with no battle plan, without a proper strategy for how to overcome would be foolish. 
Such a foolish action would only lead to the death of countless of your own men's lives and the eventual loss of everything. The other side would come in. They would take with them the spoils of war, leaving, with you, leaving you with nothing but pain, death, great loss, and misery. Far better to send out a delegation and surrender and spare the lives of your people than to send them into a battle knowing that they cannot win it and that they're going to die for nothing. How does this relate to the call to discipleship? Well, just as the call to discipleship involves building, it also involves battling. When we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, we are entering into a spiritual battle. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see, the field that we enter into is not a playground, but a battleground. When you accept the invitation to come to Christ, you are enlisting as a soldier in the spiritual battle that wages on all around us. And Jesus wants us to know what is at stake. He wants us to know what will be asked of us as good soldiers or Marines or sailors, okay? Or I don't know, we have any airmen here? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Back there, okay, the police, okay? Yeah, okay? We will be asked and expected to fight in the battle, to engage the enemy, to take ground for the Lord and to defend our territory. The battlefield is not for the faint of heart. We must be ready to lay down our lives for one another in battle. And that, I believe, is the emphasis here. Jesus is letting the whole multitude know what lies ahead for them. He wanted them to know what it meant to follow him, what it would cost, and what sacrifices would need to be made for the cause. So as disciples of the Lord, we must count the cost and we must be willing to pay the ultimate price for him. And this is summed up in verse 33, where it says, So likewise... Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. In order to be a disciple of Jesus, we must be willing to forsake all that we have for the Lord. And I say willing because God may or may not ask us to forsake all we have. That's for him to decide. But as followers and disciples of Christ, we must be willing to do so for him. You see, having riches or having an abundance is not a bad thing. If God has blessed you with great gain, rejoice, okay? But do not allow the riches of this world to keep you from following after the Lord and being willing to forsake it all for the Lord. As Jesus described in his parable of the soils, the riches of this world, they can choke out the work that God is desiring to do through his word. It can lead us to being unfruitful for the Lord. In his letter to Timothy, Paul addressed those who had great riches, those who had much of this world's treasures, and he said the following in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. He said, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain, uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they, may, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. When it comes to the riches of this world, it's okay to have them as long as they don't have us. Material possessions are fine as long as those possessions do not possess us, as long as they don't keep us from moving forward in obedience to all that Christ has for us. We are to use our resources for good, to be rich in good works, to be ready to give, to be willing to share. And in doing so, we will be storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven, a foundation for the time to come. 
The call to discipleship can be very costly. We may be asked to give our all, to forsake all our worldly possessions, all our desires and dreams. But here's the odd thing about such sacrifices. We think, oh man, that's a high price to pay. Here's what's odd. The only way to find true fulfillment and satisfaction is through a fully surrendered life to Christ. You will find that anything you are asked to give up for the Lord will be far outweighed by whatever it is God has for us in return. And you will not regret it. Jesus promises in Matthew chapter 19, verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. What we surrender for the Lord will be nothing compared to what we gain from the Lord. We will be able to say like Paul did, what things were gained to me, these I counted loss for Christ. Paul continues and said, Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Everything Paul ever surrendered and forsook for the Lord in his cause was counted as rubbish in comparison to what he gained. The word rubbish, it speaks of that which is thrown out to the dogs. Okay, It's the, the refuse, the waste, things that are completely worthless. The things you give up for the Lord will be considered worthless in comparison to what you gain through faith and obedience. And so do not let the things of this world keep you from being willing to forsake it all for Christ. That is our duty as disciples for the Lord, to be willing to forsake it all for Him. Well, let's look at our final verses. Jesus uses one more analogy to describe what the life of the disciple needs to be like. Read with me verses 34 and 35, and then we'll wrap up our text and make some final remarks. 34 says, Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus in his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, he called his followers the salt of the earth. But he cautioned, saying, But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You see, salt in that day was not the same as the salt that we have today. Much of the salt that we have access to today is pure salt. Okay, And if you know anything about salt, pure salt does not lose its flavor. So when you read through this and you say, oh, salt losing its flavor, that doesn't make sense. Well, it doesn't make sense to us because we know pure salt. Okay, Sodium chloride is very stable. Um, it doesn't lose its saltiness. Okay? But the salt of Jesus' day was an impure salt. It was possible for it to lose its saltiness. And the most common ways this would occur was actually through contamination. Okay? When certain elements were mixed in with the salt, it would cause chemical reactions to occur over time and cause the salt to lose its flavor. And I think this is interesting to consider in light of God's call to be separate from the world and the things of this world. 
We are salt. But if we constantly contaminate ourselves with the things of this world, we can lose our saltiness, if you will. Okay, we can prove to be ineffective as salt. You know, salt has many purposes in Jesus' day. Salt was used as a flavor enhancer, much like it is today. We sprinkle a little salt on our food. It makes things taste better. Uh, enhances the overall quality of certain foods. But salt was used as well as a purifying agent to disinfect and clean. It could even be used somewhat medicinally as an antiseptic. It would sting okay, when it touches the wound, but it would help kill off any infection that was uh, ongoing. Uh, salt was also used to prevent decay as a preservative. Uh, in a world where refrigeration did not exist, salt was used to help keep meats from decaying over time. And so, you know, you might uh, have a calf or a sheep and you, you butcher it, but you don't eat the whole entire animal on one setting. And so you take that meat and you rub it down with salt, you pack it away, wrap it up. Later on, you can take it back out, rinse off the salt and cook it up and wouldn't have to worry about your meat decaying. And so salt would preserve uh, and keep that which was good healthy, you know, and wouldn't allow uh, the decay to spread or, or to even start. And so as we consider Jesus's analogy of us being salt, we see that in general, Jesus is looking for his disciples to have a certain impact upon the world around them. They are to enhance life, to make it better. They're to act as a purifying agent in the world, to combat the infection of sin upon this world. They're to act as a preservative, not only do disciples fight against the decay of this world, but they also help to maintain that which is healthy and good, that which is beneficial. But if a disciple loses its saltiness, okay, if he becomes contaminated with too much of this world, and is no longer effective as the salt of the earth, then he will no longer be of any use. He will be thrown out to be trampled upon underfoot, as Jesus mentioned in Matthew chapter 5. You see, it is possible for us to ruin our Christian character and to contaminate ourselves so much with the things of this world that we become of no good use. And we end up getting tossed aside and trampled on by this world. We wanted so much to be part of the world. We were not willing to separate ourselves from it. And we allowed ourselves to be contaminated by it. And God will then just give us over to the world, allow ourselves to be trampled by this world. You know, it reminds me of what Paul had to say uh, to the man in 1 Corinthians. You might be familiar with this portion of Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was a man that was involved in blatant sexual immorality. In the type of sexual immorality that wasn't even named amongst the Gentiles. Like It was like, oh my goodness, heathens don't even do what you're doing. That's so bad. But they were flaunting it as a, hey, we're Christians. We can do whatever we want. We're free in Christ. And and he instructed the church in Corinth to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Okay, This was not a salvation issue. This was a discipline issue. Okay, And he, in order to save this person, the flesh needed to be destroyed. That which was keeping him from all that the Lord desired for him needed to be dealt with and destroyed. And so there's that sense of like, okay, we're going to, you want to be part of the world? You want to be contaminated with the world? There's a certain sense where God says, okay, that's what you want. And you're going to find yourself trampled underfoot by the world left and abused, but the flesh will be destroyed, that the spirit may live. Eventually, after repentance and the destruction of the flesh, they're to bring this brother back in. And that's why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, urging them to reaffirm their love to him, to welcome him back in so that he would not be completely swallowed up in sorrow. There's a certain sense of like, okay, you want the world? 
We're going we're gonna to give you that, okay? And you're going to feel the effects of that. And when you're ready to come back, and when you repent, you're going to come back in. You know, and there may come a time where we lose our saltiness. We're tossed aside, but where there is true repentance and a sincere heart, I believe there could be an opportunity to return and be used of the Lord again. This is the amazing grace of God at work in us. In conclusion, you guys, I think the main point Jesus is wanting to make is quite clear. We must count the cost when it comes to following Jesus. Jesus isn't looking for quantity as much as he desires quality. The masses were following him everywhere he went, but they were not true followers of the Lord. They were not his disciples. And so he gave this teaching to the masses about what it truly means to follow Jesus, what it truly means to be his disciple Being his disciple involves loving Jesus more than anyone or anything else. It involves putting Jesus as our number one priority and willingly laying down our life for him. Being his disciple involves both building his kingdom and battling against the forces of evil. Being his disciple involves a willingness to forsake all and to see those things which we've forsaken in their proper context as rubbish compared to what we receive through Christ. It involves being salt enhancing life, preserving life, and preventing the spread of decay in this world. Jesus is still seeking for disciples that will forsake all and surrender their lives to him, that he may use them for his glory and for his honor. And I think the basic question we must ask ourselves is whether or not we will be willing to answer the call. Do we want to try and pretend that we can just be a believer a nominal Christian, kind of just do my own thing, and yeah, I believe what Jesus taught. Or are we going to answer the call to be a disciple? Jesus wasn't looking for believers, okay? He was looking for disciples. And he's still looking for disciples today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this challenging portion of Scripture that really lays it all out, Lord, what it means to be a disciple, what it means to follow after you genuinely and sincerely, Lord, willing to forsake all for you, just as you forsook your own life and laid it down for us. Lord, I pray that each and every one of us here will answer the call to discipleship. Lord, that we would not be uh, tricked into thinking that, you know, we can just you know, acknowledge you in our lives, but yet not submit and surrender ourselves to you, Lord. Lord, may we not be those who uh, have partaken of cheap grace, Lord. It definitely was not cheap for you. And Lord, we thank you that it's offered to us freely, Lord, but it, it did cost. It cost you greatly. And so, Lord, I pray that we would acknowledge that sacrifice Lord, not that we try to earn or return. We cannot repay. We can never reciprocate what you did for us. But Lord, you call us to follow after you and to surrender ourselves. And so, Lord, give us the strength to do so. May we be salt in this world, Lord. May we um, enhance life and preserve life, Lord, and prevent the spread of decay as best as possible as you use us for your honor and glory. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.